gave your son die on the cross on our behalf. Help us dwell on that enough today that we can see you at work there. Acknowledge what you've done. Thank you for the broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I think we all like a good, a good story. Uh, we all like uh, to go to the movie theaters uh, to see a good movie. I can't believe that it cost my family of five forty dollars to go to a movie. Now it shows how old I am because I can start talking about the dollar movie theater that I used to go to, and now I'm paying eight fifty a head. Then you go in there and they, if they didn't rob the bank enough, then you start buying the popcorn and the Coke, and it just keeps adding up. It's amazing what it costs to go to the movie, but we're willing to pay for it. I mean, you look at the blockbusters, and you look at the movie theaters on a Friday night, and you better get there early on a new release because you may miss it, and you don't want to miss the new release, and you don't want to get the seat where you're having to sit like this and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, America, we're fascinated with the theaters, and it's probably about one of the things that we still have the almost the sole export rights to, all right? We import so much, and, and the whole trade balance, we're not going to talk about that, but we export Hollywood, and that is not always a good thing. But we do do it, and we do it very often. You go around the world, they want to know about, uh, about this movie or that movie, and it's just like, do you not realize it was not real? That head did not get blown off. Uh, the, the blood that splattered was not real blood. But in, especially in Africa, they just can't believe that. that, that, that that's not, was not want, real. But we go to the movies a lot. We rent the movies a lot. In fact, uh, in, in an average day, 3 million Americans will go to a movie. Another 6 million will rent a video. And I just want to see, if, if you have been to the movie in the past seven days or have rented a movie, would you raise your hand? All right? So most everybody in here, or at least most families are represented in here, as having tried to watch a movie. We love stories. It's all about a story. I, I sometimes go to a good movie, and I like going to a good movie, getting in that dark room, and almost uh, just living vicariously in that person on the screen. You know, that's a part of the going to the movie. It's, you just kind of disengage. And the world is, is very much, as I said, it's, it, the world loves good, a good story. It was interesting, I found this week on the Internet that the Chinese have increased their movie watching 25% each year in the past five years. Basically, the world will go to the movies. Now, this, movie is, this message is not about the movies. The message is about the story. We like a good story. It comes down to that. We like to maybe get out of our story and to get into somebody else's story. So we will go. We'll pay $40 to take our family to watch... Somebody else's story. And maybe we can transpose ourselves. And if that's not good enough, we'll, uh, we'll get a good book. Now, I was thinking about that. You know, what do you do with a good book? You take a good book and you curl up in a blanket and you sit by the fire. Well, that's not exactly very romantic right now. So you get a good book and you go sit on the beach. You go to the, you go to the lake or something like that. And you read this, this great novel, this suspense drama, you know, love story or, or what have you. And, in the U.S. book sales in 2000, so this is several years ago, $25 billion, according to the American Publishers Association. So again, America loves a good story. 
A good story in the movie theater, a good story in a book, we want to hear a good story. And if we don't read a good story or watch a good story, we'll make up a good story. It's called gossip. You know what? You're sitting there, you're hearing bits and truths, bits and pieces of different people's stories. And you're then adding to that story. And you're building on that story. I'm a people watcher, so I can sit in a mall and create many different stories. I can create stories about stories to, on top of stories. Now, I'm, I'm just that's where my mind goes. And, and if I take that a step further and begin to share those made-up, dreamed-up, added-to stories or bits and pieces of other people's gossip, then I become the gossiper. But we love it. We love a story. We lean in on a good story, even if we have to create it ourselves. That's what the Proverbs says. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a gossip are like tasty bits of food. People like to gobble them up. What's it saying? It says that we like stories. We tell our children bedtime stories. We all have a story. The Bible itself is a book of stories. In fact, 70% of the Bible is narrative in nature. There's prophetic, there's poetry, there's so many different genres, there's epistles or letters that were written. But so much of it, 70% of the Bible, is nothing but stories. Now, what's the big deal about stories? The stories is, is really kind of where it's at because Jesus realized even the value of a good story. Anytime Jesus would speak, He would speak in story form. In fact, He would never speak, the Bible says, unless He would t- tell a story. It's called a parable many times that He would tell. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He would always have a punch to it. He would always have a have a line to it. He will always have a principle for us to live by. But again, it comes down to a story. Probably Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, it talks about this. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, He never spoke to them without using such parables. But what is it that across the cultures of this world, China, America, or wherever, what is it about through time, from the time of Jesus to to this present time. What is it about stories that are so captivating? Stories captivate the heart. Facts don't. In fact, even in our very literate culture, we are a a culture that is a a story-driven culture. Seventy percent of Americans will learn better through a narrative form than through a conceptual or linear form. You, you get me up here on, on a Sunday morning and I can share story after story of my life or other people's lives or lives that I've made up or stories that I've made Not that I'm doing that, but I mean, I, I tell all of this to you because, and, and you know, you'll remember those stories more than you'll remember the facts that I give you. In fact, I just railed off a bunch of facts there, percentages and so forth. You know what? I was speaking to your left brain. I was speaking to, your, to that linear part of your, of your life where you've categorized things now, I would love to turn around and give you a test now and have you fill in the blank on the statistics that I just gave you. The problem is, is that you won't, not, you're not smart enough. Is that, you don't, that doesn't capture you. What captures you is the right brain, and that's that, that, that more holistic thinking, that more narrative thinking, that more, that more heart-level thinking, the creativity side. Is that right? Jesus would speak to the creative side of us. He would speak to the narrative side of us. This is all very important to hang with me. I promise you, I'm not just giving you a a teaching or a lesson in the films. The point is this. 
is every single one of us in this room has a story to tell. You have a a degree of a story that you can tell that could literally change another person's life. Now, you can step into their life and give them all kinds of propositions. You can step into their life and give them 50 ways or why they shouldn't have an affair. You can give them statistics on why they shouldn't drink, smoke, chew, or run with those who do. You can give them stats on why they should get an education. And you know what? You will fill up their heads with tremendous amounts of truth, the facts that are very helpful for really sustaining it. But if you want to capture them, you really want to impact them, tell them a story. Tell them a test. Give them your testimony. Give them your story on how their life could be different or what you've learned from your mistakes in life. We all have a story. The challenge today is for us to tell that story. Don't feel like you have to keep that story to yourself because I would say this, God is doing a work in everybody in this room's life today. Now, that's a broad, broad assumption, but I believe it to be true. Now, every single one of us, God is at work in, I believe, He's either drawing us or He's changing us or He's shaping us or He's whittling us away or He's blessing us or He's he's doing all kinds of things. Some in this room may be far from God. Some may be closer to God than they ever have been in their life. Now, what about your life? What about that story that's developing? What kind of difference can that make in somebody's life? Jesus was a storyteller, but let me tell you another person who was a storyteller. When he was given the opportunity to stand on trial for his life before a king, King Agrippa, he was given the opportunity to speak his mind. He didn't line up five reasons why you should follow Jesus or 15 reasons why you should follow Jesus. He simply told his story. Paul is the man I'm speaking of. Paul was arrested for basically being a Christian. That was, that, was his, that, that was his crime, okay? He was arrested for being a Christian. He was put in jail. And he had been there before. This is not the first rodeo for him. He had been there before. And so here he is again. This time, King Agrippa happens to be in the area. you got to understand King Agrippa. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. So he has a lineage here going on. He has a history here. He has a family tradition, a family tree that's been blooming here. And if you study the Herod family, it was not exactly a picturesque, beautiful kind of situation. But here's Herod, the, here's Herod Agrippa. He's about 30 years old, and he is beginning to really rule over this area. He's a young 30. He is a man who is very impressionable still, he is, but he is also a very prideful individual. He's willing to learn. He's willing to explore, and we'll see that in just a moment. And he's he doesn't have his morals exactly in in, in in line. His sister is Bernice, and he's actually in an incestuous relationship with her in this in this situation. And so he's going to Caesarea to see her and to see Festus, a, a magistrate of the area. And while he is there, guess who's in jail? Paul. Paul is now on trial, so why not see the king? Why not stand before the king? And so he does. So if you were standing before whomever out there, and you had the opportunity to tell 
them about your life, what would you say? Paul gets into this, and I want to read you just a couple of verses. Acts chapter 26, if you'll find that. The words will appear on the screen, but this is kind of where we jump into the story. Verse 26 says, Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. It means when you step into the presence of the king, you keep your mouth shut until he says you can open it. It says, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things in which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. Now notice the respect that he's going to give King Agrippa in his next verses. Especially because you are an expert in all the customs and the questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Please don't rush to judgment. Please take a moment. You're a respected individual. You're an educated individual. Would you take just a moment and let me tell you my story? And King Agrippa obviously obliges. And so for the next several verses, and we won't go into them all right now, but for the next several verses, he begins to tell them his story and unfold and unpack and and, and just kind of tell him who he is and where he has been from. And and again, I told you a little bit about the setting that he's in. Festus is there. Who knows if Bernice is there? I don't know what all is going on. But here he is. He's standing and he's telling his story. If you're a Christ follower today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a story to tell. A lot of times churches will call this evangelism or giving your testimony. Testimony has such a legalese kind of connotation to it. It sounds like you're on trial, like, like Paul here. But you know what? You can be in your neighborhood standing out, mowing the yard, talking to your neighbor. You can be on the tennis court or the golf course. You can be at the gym. You can be at a restaurant. You can be sipping coffee at Starbucks. You can be doing anything at any of these places, and you can simply tell your story. And really cool things can happen when you just tell your story. My challenge to you today is to get past the fear of telling other people about Jesus. Telling other people about your story and what He has done can be the most effective way of bringing them to a faith relationship. No, 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 Mike, that's your job. You're the hired hand. You're the pastor. You're the one who's supposed to evangelize Northwest Arkansas, right? No. You know what? You have relationships with people that I could not get a conversation with. I could not sit down with. I would not be able to have coffee with them. They would run from me like the plague. You ought to be in our subdivision whenever we, I introduce myself and they find out that I'm not a vendor or something like that and that I'm a pastor. Walls go up. They, they get the kids, run in the house, and shut the door. And for the next years, I'm working on breaking down that wall. I don't have to present Jesus to them at all. I just have to say I'm a pastor. And walls go up. So you have an inroad with people that I don't have. And I want to take the fear factor down two or three notches today just by saying, you know what? If you'll just share your story, what might happen? One of the things that might happen, kind of a, some, there's going to be some questions that we're going to deal with, but there's some results that can come out of this, is one of the things that might happen is your relationship with God can be solidified. As you go through these three questions that we're going to look at today, 
you can really kind of nail down, you know what? I know I'm a follower of Christ. I know I have a relationship with God. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I know that when I pray, God will hear me. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. As you work through your story, then you can solidify that relationship with God. And it can be a very confirming event process for you. If you'll do that, take the time to work through your story. In fact, before you should ever take the Lord's Supper, of which we're going to do here in a few moments, you should always think through your story. Think through these three questions that we're about to ask. Because these three questions will help you formulate your story in such a way that you can either live it and solidify that relationship, or you can share it, which brings me to this. Well, let me, let me read a verse for you. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, it says, A man must examine himself... In so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. We have two ordinances in our church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are things that God has, Jesus, before he left, God and his word has established. These are the things that the church needs to be about. They need to be about baptism and they need to be about the Lord's Supper in celebrating me, okay, in celebrating my relationship with him. Today's one of those days, but before you take the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself. I'm not going to examine you. And that Grady tells us to examine ourselves. I'm not going to come into your life, you know what, you need to fix this. You know, this isn't right. The Spirit of God knows you better than I know you, better than you know you, and you need to just listen. If He's saying you need to rearrange something, rearrange something. Put something in greater priority. Take something out of your life that shouldn't be there. Listen to that voice. Examine yourself. Then you can come to the table. Then you can enjoy the Lord's Supper. Let this time be a time where you're examining yourself. But here's the second benefit, the second result of, of being able to tell your story. First is the relationship with God is solidified, but two, two the, your relationship with God is multiplied. When you begin to share your story, guess what? You are transferring your faith. Practice it with your children. Practice it with your mother and your father. Practice it with your aunt and uncle, your brother or your sister. Practice telling your story. And who knows, you may tell your story and say, you know what, my life doesn't fit what you're talking about right there. And we'll talk about the three questions that are vital to the whole telling the story thing. But, you know, you can actually help people come to faith in Christ through telling your story. Let me, let me show you here, because in, in very short, what, um, what Paul does here is, is what we ought to look at. So he goes in verse in chapter 26, and again, I'm giving you a broad-stroking overview. He tells him to listen patiently in verse 3. Then from verse 4 all the way down through till a verse uh, about 27, uh, he is telling his story. Finally, Festus gets enough, and he cuts him off. But here in verse 24, look there. He says, while Paul was saying this, in defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter the words of sober truth, for the king knows how these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his, this, his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul. And, this is what, and he said to Paul, he said, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. 
What did he do? Well, what happened between verse 4 and verse 27? What happened? What did he say? What did he do that he gets King Agrippa, this incestuous 30-year-old, knobby-kneed king, how does he get him to the point that I'm almost ready to become a Christian? You know what he does? He tells his story. Now, if you don't have a story today, let the results of this message solidify or bring you to a relationship with him. If you do have a story today, let this message encourage you. Three questions I think he mentions in this, as he is going through this that will help you, that you can ask about yourself and that will help you in sharing of your faith. Is, here they are. Number one is what is or was my life before encountering Jesus Christ? What is, and I say that in the present tense because for some in this room, they're still at that point. They haven't had an encounter with Jesus Christ. So what is it in my life, what does my life look like, or what did my life look like before I had an encounter with Jesus Christ? Not an encounter with the church, not an encounter with the preacher, not an encounter with a Sunday school teacher, not an encounter at church camp. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, God doesn't use those links. But if you can't separate out, I had an encounter with the pastor, or I had an encounter at church, if you can't separate that out and say, I had an encounter with Jesus and His Spirit working in my spirit, then please separate those two. Pull those apart because they're different. We have encounters at church all the time. You meet good and bad ministers all the time. You have good and bad Sunday school teachers all the time. But what you need to do is, what was my life before I met Jesus? How did it look? Paul tells us how his looked in verse verse 9. He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile in the name of Jesus, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He's telling about his life before becoming a follower of Jesus. He said, I thought I had to do all these bad things to undercut and to be hostile in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison. Now, some of y'all may not realize this is the way the Paul who wrote most of the New Testament really was. He was absolutely a crazy man against Christianity. He said, I locked up saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. So here they are. Paul is this killer of killers. He is he's brutalizing Christians. He is undercutting them. He is tearing them down. He is beating them up. He is trying to have them killed. And he's even trying to get them to deny their faith. Verse 11. And as I punished them often in, my, in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being... Uh, Furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Do you see Paul's life before he became a follower of Christ? He was a scoundrel at, the, at, at being nice about it. He was far from God. And I think Paul has to come to a place, and we all have to come to a place, where we realize I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. When I was eight years old, was when I gave my life to following Christ. It's funny, on this whole uh, birthday, uh, some of you all know I went through a 
this tragic birthday scenario this past week. I turned 40. I'm four decades old. And uh, one of the gifts my mother gave me was my very first Bible. And a little green Bible with my name on it, Michael Lee McDaniel. And I can remember opening it up and looking at it and, and seeing all the, the, the little jots and tittles in there that I, that I had. And I, and I remember in there, it has when I was baptized. It has, it has in there. And I knew two weeks prior to that is when I gave my life to Christ. Now, at eight years old, I wasn't doing drugs in the sandbox. Okay? I was an extremely bad kid. I was not the best of kids. But I was not an extremely bad kid. So what can a kid at eight, how can a kid at eight really make this decision? I, don't, I can't tell you everything that I went through, but I can remember being in that little country church, Montenegro Baptist Church over in Rogers, and holding on to the back of the pew in front of me, and my knuckles being white and my heart being heavy. To this day I remember it. Holding on because I knew I needed to go forward, and that pastor was calling me forward. And I didn't know what all the answers were when I got there. If he's going to ask me questions, I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I just knew that I needed Jesus. And in a childlike, eight-year-old way, that's all I knew. And so I ended up talking to the pastor that day, going home that day, praying with my mother that day at the kitchen table, giving my life to Christ. And I don't remember much about my life before then, but to think about it, I do remember this. I knew. I knew that I needed a relationship with Jesus. Our church has been blessed in recent days to see several people. Almost weekly we're having people come to know Christ. It is so encouraging when children come to know Christ. Leotta was sitting in the office the other day for about 30 minutes and was telling me child after child after child she's talking with right now about a faith relationship with Christ. And I get so excited about that. You know what really, really, though, gets me excited and elated is when an adult comes to know Christ. Say, oh, what about the precious children? I'm all for precious children coming to know Christ. But there's something about a child coming to know Christ. They're a whole lot more humble. They're already impressionable. They're already willing to do whatever is right. There's, there's, a, there's a proclivity in that direction. But when we become self-sufficient, self-sustaining adults, we all of a sudden are too prideful. And I love it as we've had baptisms in our church to see so many adults come to faith in Christ and express their faith in Christ. But what does it take? It takes a point of personal crisis. A point in your life when you realize, I'm bankrupt in my spirit. I am bankrupt in my spirit. There's an emptiness about me. And I need Jesus. Now, if I just described you. I don't know you, and I don't know who you are. But if that is you, that is your life before Christ. I don't agree with everything that Samuel Keene says in his book, Hymns of the Unknown God. But I, I do believe that he actually has something going on here. He's asking the right questions. Because this is what he said. He said, the quest begins at an individual when an individual falls into a spiritual black hole in which everything that was solid vaporizes. Certainties vanish. Authorities are questioned. All the usual comforts and assurances of religion fail. And the path disappears. And I really don't believe a person can really have an encounter with Christ until they reach a black hole experience. Until, as it says in 
the Beatitudes until they are poor in spirit, bankrupt in spirit. Have you ever come to a black hole experience in your own life? Maybe you're there right now. Ask yourself the question, what was my life like? Or what is my life like without Christ? Brings me to the second question that we've got to ask. Is how did I be how did I come to the decision point in Christ? To follow, to follow Christ. How did I come to that decision point? And I really believe it's a decision point that you follow Christ. You say, well, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in church. You don't understand. I went to church nine months before I was born, and I was not a Christian. All right? You, you're not always a Christian. You're not always a Christian because you've always gone to a Christian church, because you've always had a Bible in the home, or because you always believed in Christ or that, that He was out there. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Christ when you make a decision to follow Him. You can be all around it all your life and be all around it all your life and smell it and know it and sing it and and talk about it and walk the walk and talk the talk, but until you have made a decision from your heart. I went through catechism and I went through confirmation and I was baptized. I even got a certificate to prove it. Uh Uh-uh. Is there a time in your life when you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ? Decision point in your life. Crisis of belief moment in your life. Look what Paul said in verse 12. He says, While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority commissioned by the chief priest. And midday, O king, I saw the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those journeying with me. And they, they had fallen, uh, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus speaking to him. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for the purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to these things which you have seen but also to the things that will appear to you. This is a point of decision. He comes to a point of decision in his faith and in his life where he realizes he needs to follow Christ. Has there ever been a decision point in your life? When we're in Africa and we show the Jesus film, you don't do this in Africa any more than you do it in Asia, any more than you would do it in America. But when we were in Africa, we would show the Jesus film and, and you'd see an entire village come out for this. And it was always a beautiful thing to be there when Jesus speaks for the very first time in their own dialect. You're, you're showing it to the Lozies and they're hearing Jesus speak in Lozi to them. You're showing it to, to, to the Tonga, and all of a sudden Jesus is speaking Tonga. And they just start laughing because Jesus is the white man's God. And all of a sudden, Jesus, the white man's God, is speaking my language? Did you catch what language Jesus was speaking to him here? He was speaking to him in the Hebrew dialect. Gee, see, he was speaking to them in Tonga, or he was speaking to this, 
So they hear Jesus' voice for the very first time, speaking their language to them about coming and following Him, and they're seeing the story of Jesus unfold before them. But we learn very quickly in that whole process, at the end of the film, when we say, hey, would you like to become a Christ follower? The last thing we could do is just have them raise their hand. Everybody in the village would raise their hand. Everybody wants what Jesus offers. Everybody wants to be good. Everybody wants... But some people don't want to make the decision to literally make a change of ownership, a change of lifestyle, a change of character, a change in their life. And so, just as Paul is having to wrestle with here, he's now being called from being a persecutor of Christ to being a preacher for Christ. He's going to have to make a decision. It's a decision point for him. And he goes on, and obviously he makes that decision. But here we are in Africa. So what we learn to do is we will take rocks and we would line a path, a very narrow path, in the, in the, in the old dusty dirt. And, uh, and we would line up these rocks. And then at the end we would take piece of tape or we'd take a rope or we'd draw a line in the, in the dirt and as, as they would line up say if you want to follow Christ we want to invite you to come down this row and when you cross this line you are saying goodbye to all your former ways and you're saying hello to Jesus and what, what we'd ask them to do is when they cross that line we'd say you turn around and you face your village and you tell your village that I am now a Christ follower. And then we'd even take it a step further. And we'd say those charms that you've got around your neck, that you're trying to ward off evil spirits or that you've been praying to evil spirits to, for God to hex somebody over there, says, I want you to take those charms off too. I want you to, and we'd, we'd sometimes dig a hole in the ground and start a little fire there. And then when they would come across that line, they were saying they're going to follow Jesus. They would take off those charms. And you ought to see the tension in their hearts when that would happen. They would take off those charms. And it was so hard because what happened, you see, they had been trusting in those charms for so long to protect them and to save them and to give them life that it was literally prying their fingers apart to throw those charms away. There's a big difference between being around Christianity and really being a Christian. Because if you're really a Christian, there's a point of decision in your life when your life is changed. When your ownership and leadership of your life is totally revolutionized. When Jesus becomes your wonderful counselor, your Prince of Peace, your mighty God, your everlasting Father. When He becomes everything that He should be in you. Let me ask you this. Here's the question. When was that decision point in your life? Here's the last question that you can ask yourself. First of all, what was my life like before following Christ? Have you ever had that black hole experience? The darkness, the bankruptcy of the Spirit kind of moment? Have you ever come to that decision point in your life? And, okay, what was that decision point like? Don't focus on the when. Don't focus on the where. Focus on the why when you're thinking about your story. And then lastly, how did I come... Excuse me. What was the change in my life or how has your life been morphed since following Christ? How's your life been changed? The word morphed is a Greek word. And it's where we get our scientific word, uh, metamorphosis. It's where you take a fuzzy worm and you make a beautiful butterfly. 
How is it that God can take us fuzzy people and make us different? How can He take a wrecked marriage and bring it hope again? How can He take a wrecked character and give it integrity again? How, can, how does that happen? It happens through a relationship with Jesus Christ when He enters into our life and changes us. And in verse 19, if you skip down there, He says, So Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul said, I got up, I took off my persecution clothes, and I put on my Christ-following clothes. And I went from persecuting Christians to preaching Christianity. He says, I couldn't ignore the vision. My life was changed. Things were rearranged in my life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Anyone who is joined to Christ is in a new beginning. The old is gone and the new has come. Romans 12.2 says it like this, Do not conform yourself to the standards of this world. Let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Is God changing you? Morphing you? You know, telling your story is pretty simple. What was your life like before following Christ? What was the decision point in your life when you turned things over? And then finally, how is Christ changing your life? How is He making a difference in you? I want you to watch this video. I think the video will speak to you about one of the members of our church, newer members of our church, and how God has been working in his life. And you'll hear the before, you'll hear the decision point, and you'll also hear how his life is... Not in a perfect order, it's him just telling his story. There's no perfect order to this. But we'll listen to this story. I was saved when I was about eight year old, and I was raised in a very straight-laced, very disciplined family. Uh, there was not a lot of love and even fewer hugs. And when I was saved, I was taught in a very, very strict church, and they told me everything that I couldn't do, but they never told me anything that I could do. So I, once I got a little bit older, I rejected it completely and I, I got into to drugs and alcohol and, and various things that I don't even want to discuss. Uh, God knows about them and I have been forgiven. Thank God for that. I, as, as years went by, my heart continued to get harder and harder. Uh, I used people. I used them a lot. Uh, I would tear them down to make me feel better about myself. I progressively got worse and worse. Um, I drew within myself. I, I had no friends. I had lost my wife years before. Uh, we never got divorced until recently because I didn't want my family. Uh, my family, I, I gathered my family in just as tight as uh, to me as I possibly can could. And that was falling apart. Um, I had fallen into a deep depression. I was about to lose my house. Uh, I was afraid I was losing my kids. And when my kids left me, then, then so would my grandkids also. And I, I realized that I had nothing. You know, so at the lowest point, um, I, I just asked God. I said, Lord, take, take the depression. Take me. Take it away from me. And I will get back in church and I will live my life for you. And, you know, I woke up the very next day and the weight had been lifted from my shoulders. I, I was... I was happy. I was, I, was, I was almost giddy. My daughter, which I hadn't had a good relationship with her since she was about 12, 
we've got a better relationship now than what we have ever had. Uh, I had shunned my mom also. Uh, I ran everybody away. I let nobody in, and, and that included my mom. And I didn't tell her that I had rededicated my life. We just sat there and talked for just a couple of minutes. And she looked at me and she said, "Sounds like you've rededicated your life." You know, what I mean, she could, she just, she could just tell. She could see it in me, I guess. And she just knew me well enough to know. And that was that. That moment was one of the most precious moments that I can ever remember. And uh, she always, always taught Sunday school. And that's one reason that I want to be so involved with the kids. And, you know, uh, my, my youngest boy, I see a lot of him the way I was back when I was a, a kid or a young. Uh, he's, he doesn't need people. He doesn't want people. He doesn't want anybody close to him. And just the fact of, of what he's missing by missing out on the fellowship, go to God. God gives the answers. And he has helped me out of my position it, there's not a person out there that he can't help. I so bad want to make a difference in somebody else's life and let them see what a difference he's made in me. People who've known me for a long time, it doesn't take them very long before they realize that I'm not the same man that I used to be. The, the, the peace I have is, is something that I've never had before. I've never had that kind of peace in my life. And I just thank God daily for it. I really enjoy hearing people's stories. And you know, you take that story right there, told in three minutes, and what if you took time today to just kind of work and think through your story? My life before becoming a follower of Christ. When did that decision point happen in my life? Did I make the decision? That black hole experience, am I still living in that black hole experience? Did I, have I ever made that decision to follow Him? What change? Jack talked about his mother recognizing it on his countenance of his face. I mean, can people see Jesus in us? Have we been morphed from the inside out? If so, we need to share it. Take those opportunities. My challenge to you, find somebody this week. Don't, don't, don't spam evangelism. You know, spam is you get it in, the, in your emails and you hate it. Well, don't spam evangelism. Don't give them if they don't want it. But if you have a relationship with somebody and you're having coffee and you're with them and you have opportunity, share your story. This is what Colossians says in Colossians 4, 5. It says, Be wise in the way you act toward those who are not believers, making good use of every opportunity you have. But you know, if you're here today and you look at your life and you say, You know what? I don't have, I don't have a life following that black hole. I'm in the black hole. I've never made a decision to follow Christ. I've been pretending, but I haven't made that decision. You know, the worst story is not that your story may be better than mine or worse than mine, longer than mine or shorter than mine, more grandiose than mine or more saintly than mine. That's not, that's not a bad story. Your story is your story. My story is my story. A bad story is not even the one that's not told. Now, that's bad. That's shameful. That God has given you Himself. He has changed your life. But you won't share it. That's like buying a good book, putting it on the shelf, and not even opening it. Putting it up there. It's a book that's never been read. It's a story that's never been told. That's a shame, but that's not the worst story. 
the worst story is the one that's never been written. Never been written. Just living in a black hole. Not in a relationship with Jesus. Let Him be that changing point in your life. The message is simple today. Let this story message cause you to solidify your story. Do you have one? If you don't, I, I hope you will. We're going to have the Lord's Supper now. Guys, if you all will make your way, deacons, if you'll make your way to the, to the tables and prepare them, we're just going to allow it to be open. Okay? When you're ready, you can go. If you're not ready in your heart and you can't go, that's okay. You just stay there. Things aren't right, just stay there where you're at. You need to come here and pray at the front, you come pray at the front. I'll be here at the front. We can pray together. If you're in that black hole moment and you're ready to make that decision to follow Christ, cross that line, then do it. Cross that line, take off the jewels of this world, the charms of this world, and say, I'm following Jesus now. Then let's do it. But let this be a time where you really inspect yourself before. Then when you're ready to go to the table, go and take a little piece of bread, take a take a, a juice cup and step over to the side. If you're with somebody, if you're alone, go with somebody. If you're, you can go by yourself or you can go with a couple, you can go as a small group, you can go whatever. This is your time. I want to pray for us. And then time will be open. It will be yours to respond for a period and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll close out. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for writing into our lives a story story to be told, shared, given out, passed on. And Father, I would pray that if there's anybody in this room that doesn't have a story that has your fingerprint on it, your authorship to it, I would pray that now, during this time, during this service, you would call them out. I would pray for those that, Lord, are in this room who haven't been living up to the standard that you're calling them to. Would you awaken their spirit, Lord? Would you awaken them and, Lord, call them back to a vibrant relationship with you? Lord, we thank you for for speaking into our life right now. This is your time. In Jesus' name.